0: Hello and welcome to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. I'm sure many of us that tune into this show regularly watch wildlife and nature documentaries from across the globe in our spare time. I personally rarely watch television, but when I do, Netflix knows that I'm going to choose the latest nature documentary over whatever mainstream something is on at the time. On many occasions, while watching these stunning films, I wonder how in the world did the producers and writers come up with the story? We've been telling conservation stories for decades, and yet somehow, films are still being released that blow my socks off. I'd regularly contemplate about what it'd be like to sit down with one of these visionaries and ask them and ask them how their work came to be, especially when they're flying in a paramotor several meters off the ground to record flight from a bird's eye view, all in an effort to conserve the species they're filming. Now, that sounds like a good adventure in conservation story, doesn't it? But who is the person behind an expedition like this? Well, friends, today we are meeting one of those exceptional visionaries that is using film to protect birds. In this episode, we are sitting down with Sasha Dench, co-founder of Conservation Without Borders and ambassador for the UN's Convention on Migratory Species. Sasha grew up in the wild Australian outback and knew from an early age that she wanted to spend her career in nature. She also realized that she had a natural gift to compete in unconventional sports and became a world champion free diver for the British dive team. While diving, she saw the horrible impact shark nets were having on wildlife and began using her platform to spread awareness for positive conservation change. She was approached by a group working to protect Buick swans and the flight of the swans expedition was born a quote, 7,000 kilometer migration across the Arctic tundra to connect wildlife, wetlands, and people, unquote. She is now in the middle of her next 10,000 kilometer expedition to bring us the story of Europe's endangered osprey and narratives from the people that live with and are working to protect the species. Sasha and I chat about her childhood growing up in remote Australia, her journey through sports that gave her a platform bigger than her biologist's voice to bring positive change to our seas, why Europe's birds are having such a hard time, the story behind Flight of the Swans, and where they are currently at for the Flight of the Osprey Expedition. Get ready for a super inspirational story that I promise will make you want to lace up your boots, get out there, and make change in your special, unique way. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Sasha. Well, hi, Sasha. Thank you so much for coming on the Rewildology podcast today and phoning in all the way from across the sea to talk about your amazing work. But we have, oh man, we have so much to get through before we can talk about today because you have an incredible past that's nothing less than inspirational. So many pieces have come together to influence what you're doing today. So tell us, how did all of this begin for you?
1: All of this being, okay, so basically all of this is where I've ended up is in a career which involves following migratory species on their migrations. How did that all start? I guess there's a few things. I suppose the the key bit is this realization quite early on that despite the fact that I was kind of being encouraged into careers that involved math, I was good at math as a child. I kind of knew in my heart mass people were wanting me to get into astronomy and potentially even kind of look, thinking about being an astronaut, all those kind of things. And I just knew that the environment actually was always going to be where I worked. It was my kind of comfort zone as well. And then I thought kind of, where, where did that come from? And I realized that although I've moved around a lot as a kid, i having to start again, make new friends and everything. I always found my comfort zone was actually being outdoors, kind of in, in nature. And they also was given huge amounts of freedom in nature. So at my mum, she lives in the southeast of, of Australia. She moved to a place which was a little one-room wooden shack on a large bush property, with a river that ran through it. And my nearest friend was two hours walk away. So I um, became very comfortable. And there wasn't really anything to worry about there at the time. We didn't have telephones out there at the time even. So yeah, we basically had the freedom to at least go and walk, to see if the friend was even home, and then walk back again um but yeah we we learned how to kind of understand the bush and we were trusted to spend time out in the bush and in nature I think I then became not only very comfortable with it but also very confident in my ability you also see when you live like right in the middle of nature like that so in our house the kind of inside and outside wasn't so clear yeah I really lost any kind of fear of it but you also see very closely all of your impacts so when we'd pour anything down the sink it ended up directly in the swamp at the bottom of the hill when there was a drought in the area we had to go and physically move the pump so that we could pump water back to have any at all in the household and there was water that we drink and water that we that we would use for other purposes you just became very very aware on a really small scale of how your own impacts on the, on the planet wouldn't say it was scary, but at least made you feel very responsible for it but it's also quite empowering you can see directly anything that you do that has a positive impact and anything you do that has a negative impact that all became very clear and so I guess that's partly where if you ask for like a real core of where it came from this desire to be out in nature but also doing what I can to have to have impact and also highlighting others that are having impact on the way that's I suppose where it's all come from
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I didn't know you had such a wild childhood. Like, literally wild. Like, that is... Oh, it's beautiful, because I feel like a lot of us, there's some something about that deep connection that's fostered in, in childhood that just you just continue on down that path. It's just so great. But let's continue about the next thing. So you yeah. told me in our last call that you were like a world champion free diver. And this really launched the next part of the, you know, the next big chapter in your life. So Where does that story fit in to the greater picture, which is amazing?
1: Okay, so the free diving happened, I guess, when I was a kid. I was never particularly good at the ordinary type of sports. Don't have particularly good hand-eye coordination. I wasn't fast at anything, but I always knew that I could, underwater, I was in my element. I could beat everybody else at a mermaid competition, um, and I could hold my breath long enough underwater to scare people. So I always knew that. And then by chance, by chance, at one point while I was in the middle of doing my masters, actually, I bumped into somebody in Trafalgar Square in London who had and basically he fell over and he's out of his bag spilled all these pictures of, of free divers, and I looked at it and I was like, wow, what is what is that? And he'd just been on a free diving course, and in the, the south of the UK, and so I, knowing that that's something that I, I probably had skill at, I called up the guy responsible for the courses. And I basically said to him, if I was already scuba diving, by the way, I said to him, there's a, a sunken shipwreck from World War II in Plymouth Harbour that I dived before. It sits in 26 metres and it's really beautiful. Only the ribs of it are left and then there's lots of dead man's fingers, corals, and things all over it. And I said to him, is it possible to free dive that ship? Because I thought I'd love to do it without being encumbered by tanks. And um, he said, if you can hold your breath for two and a half minutes, I think you should be able to do it. And I went back to my kitchen and I had held my breath for three minutes, fifteen I think, sitting at the te- kitchen table. Wow. And so I was straight back on the phone to him on a, on a course. And then during the course, I held my breath longer than he did as instructor. What? And then five weeks five weeks later, I was in the joined the British free diving team. Uh, and so I kind of got into that quite quickly. But I guess where did that? How did that lead into the conservation story? I basically competed for a few years, but realised that actually my heart was in using that skill to do things rather than to compete like competing is great for learning i think and yeah competed for australia competed for britain as well and broke the unofficial world record for breath hold um but yeah my heart was in using it to do things and so in that time i started to look at the shark nets off sydney they was uh, kind of the first time i ever remember going out to a shark net just swimming out they're about 100 meters offshore i was completely shocked at what they actually are so if people think the shark net is a barrier across the beach that protects swimmers from sharks swimming in. And what they are is actually like a hundred meter long little strip of net, 10 meters high. And they've got gaps above them, gaps below them. And the beach that I was living on at the time was five kilometers long. And they had two little strips of net, 100 meters long, one at the north end and one at the south end. And there's basically indiscriminately just catch stuff. So it's a kind of like a drift net, but fixed in place and very random. And I was completely horrified that this was our strategic plan to protect people from sharks, also because everything I ever found in the nets was not dangerous. So lots of small hammerheads get caught, dolphins get caught in them, angel sharks that don't kill anything get caught in them. So um, I was completely horrified. And I started investigating this in more detail. That included asking for information on all the records and everything that gets caught in them because fishermen go out and empty them once every couple of weeks. And I had to use freedom of information to get that data to start with. And I was, that was also pretty horrific. So it looked through all of that. And I um, started trying to get publicity for it. And I found that people were this interested, even though the fact this was like species that we were really interested in and cared about. And then I started going out with a camera and taking pictures of the things caught in nets and then people were a little bit more interested. And then after I became Australian freediving champion, suddenly people were really interested in what <laughs> I had to say. I had television crews out there and everything. And I guess the thing. I was, well, I was basically horrified at the fact that as a biologist, which I was from when I started investigating the data behind it and doing it in collaboration with other scientists, people were nowhere near as interested as they were, in my opinion, as a as a sports champion. And quite often they didn't even ask if I was a biologist. And yeah, I was completely horrified by this, angry at the media. And uh, yeah, then I kind of started to realize that there wasn't really any point in me fighting that if, if the route through sports was a way of getting people's attention to start with. If that made the story at least feel like it could be accessible to people, then that was something that I should embrace and just do make the most of it. So that is, I suppose, another way I ended up kind of coming, going from being a pure scientist to incorporating adventure and story and I suppose also powerful human stories into conservation problems.
0: Wow. (laughs) Talk about a first like really powerful go at this. And then from what I understand, then this like led to your first big masterpiece, which I would call The Flight of the Swans. So this film isn't like, or this whole project wasn't like anything else that I've heard of, probably you listening haven't heard of, but we're all fascinated by. So how did the idea come to you to do the film in the way you did? And could you also explain how it all came to be and why it's so different?
1: Okay, so through the work that I'd been doing from sort of scientist then into communicator, and then trying to use that to drive change, I was asked by a load of SWAN researchers to see if I could help them With this, a problem that existed with a population of swans called the the Buick swans. Um, There's a group that migrate between the Russian Arctic and Western Europe, including the the UK. And the population had been in drastic decline. So In the past 20 years, we'd lost almost half of the birds. Scientists in countries all along the flyway had looked at all the different problems they could find. But even adding up all the threats, it didn't seem like it could add up to this drastic population decline. And with, with certain populations, if they get below a certain point and actually it's very hard to turn it around after that. So they were starting to get really, really worried. And they, lots of them felt like really frustrated. They had data for a long time and people weren't listening to it. And so one of the challenges for all migratory species is that you are trying to coordinate countries that have different political, economic statuses. Uh, where the level of interest in conservation is very different. And also the challenges, the threats in different countries can be quite different. So trying to bring all that together and realizing that with a species like the Buick Swan, every country, so there were 11 along the flyway that I was focusing on, every country could say, well, why should we do our bit? Because the next country aren't doing their bit. When you know there's Mm. so many different threats. And so I was asked to try and at the same time bring together all those people in all those different countries, but also bring together the hunting community, power companies, politicians, farmers, all sorts, and how to basically get them all to come to meetings because they were being ignored by most of the scientists. And so I sat there with all these scientists looking at all the maps they had out and everything. And I started to look at the route of the Buick swan at first of all. I knew swans migrated, but I'd never really contemplated in detail what that looked like. So for the Buick swan, They are breeding up in the Arctic, and we're talking land of polar bear and reindeer breeders who follow the reindeer herds living out of chums, teepee type structures. And then they're crossing some of the kind of wildest, most incredible wetlands in the country. They're dodging bullets. We know that one in three of the Deerick Swans has got shot in their bodies, the living birds. So a lot of them get shot out en route. So this is a bird that's going from the land of polar bears across some of the wildest wetlands and then the tiger forest, this thick, dense forest. Um, And then they're crossing into Europe, where they've now got vast expanses of agriculture, but also castles. And as time goes on and climate change is becoming stronger, we've got this um, increasing storms all the way. And all the time they're on migration, they've got young with them that will only be, you know, a matter of 10, 12 weeks old when they first migrate. And they're migrating to try and stay in front of the Arctic winter. So they've got this icy cold winter racing behind them. I just looked at all of that and I thought, God, there's a story there that people want to listen to. There's got to be a story that people want to listen to. We have to somehow bring that life to people. And we're talking, for most of them, I could imagine, having grown up in, a, well, in hunting communities as well, going to people with a story of lots of swans are dying and we think you're part of the problem, please will you come and talk to us about it, is, uh, one, is one way of starting a conversation. But another is saying, oh my God, have you seen this bird that does this incredible journey? from the russian arctic dodging bullets etc that's kind of a james bond story for the bird world so how can i start with bringing that to life and i looked at different ways of potentially putting cameras on birds and things and that was never going to get approved and then i realized at the time i was working for a conservation organization focused on wetlands and i'd already figured out that actually from the air you can really understand how a wetland connects with the landscape so i was flying paramotors to take those pictures at one point, I was, I was flying the paramotor and realized I was flying at the same speed as some of the swans were migrating. And I had this really awkward idea that perhaps it could be possible to bring to story the swans' life by flying with them, flying a whole migration from the Russian Arctic to the UK. And I kind of dismissed it for ages, thinking that was a ridiculous idea and nobody was going to, nobody would ever approve it and then yeah I sat on it for a few months and eventually it started keeping me up at night so I wrote it up with a one page idea sent it off to colleagues and the response I got back was this is absolutely bonkers but it's so mad it might just work and so that that started a conversation and within within a few months I had approval and budget to to get going so that's where the idea of basically flying with the birds came from But there were more benefits to to this. It wasn't just that I could fly along with the birds. Some of them had GPS tracks, so we had some detailed idea of exactly where they were going. From the air, you can see you get a really good picture of all the sites they're using. And some of them are remote areas where scientists aren't getting to. So are there other threats along the way that the scientists might have been missing? But the best thing about flying a paramotor, which is a, a paraglider wing with a propeller on your back, is that you don't need hills or anything to get up to take off from. You take off and land on your feet, and that meant that I could stop and land and speak to people at every every community along the way. And we're talking everyone from, like I said, reindeer breeders to farmers to hunters to politicians, school groups, whatever, all the way back to the UK. And the key thing I realised was that it doesn't matter where you land in a paramotor; people aren't generally expecting someone to land out of the sky, but they ask you three questions, and they are: Where have you come from? isn't it dangerous? And how can I help? But with that, that was a perfect conversation to start talking about, about the swans and learning from people about where so many swans might've been shot. And also in a community, figuring out who are the people that might be most inclined to help.
0: Wow. That's absolutely incredible. And so what issues were really brought to light at the end of your 11 country journey. So, wh- I guess what's the, con- since the film has already been out, like wh- what was the conclusion that, that came from it? And did it have like a- the response you were expecting? Just like, yeah, H- how did it turn out for you?
1: I guess, so I guess the film is one of the tools from it. During the expedition itself, we were filming and photographing things along the way and sharing it through social media. So, we ended up with about Almost two thousand different pieces of media coverage uh, along the way, and those were incredible because certainly the ones that were when it was local media coverage, people would hear that we were I was on my way or that the team were on their way, mm. and they would come out to try and see us to try and share stories. As so I would get on social media and tell us, "Well, my gran always used to like have swans brought home, or so and so says we don't eat this because of that, or the birds are too tough." It basically got lots of people talking before we got there, which was and that to be really handy. But yeah, the film was made right at the time. We have actually just re-edited a film, which I think has a lot more kind of heart and more about the people we met along the way in it. So that is going is being entered into film festivals at at the moment. But what were the key things that were brought to light? Like? I guess there were quite a few. For me personally, the thing that I was very strong was a the I got to see many very real examples of climate change impacting species, but also stories from real humans. Up in the Arctic, it goes that such an extreme environment, they are feeling climate change way, way stronger than many of the the rest of us are. And so seeing how the very real examples of that. So for example, with the, the swans, you can see how the Arctic is changing fast. So what was flat tundra getting more and more bigger trees there. So their landscape is actually changing really fast. It's actually making the area that they're suitable for them to breed in smaller and smaller. That was really interesting looking at historical weather patterns and seeing actually that the storms that the young birds and the adults are actually facing now are getting more and more challenging for them. The weather patterns are much more unpredictable and it's a a long, exhausting journey for them. Also looking at how many of the wetlands have disappeared, even in the last 30 years. So I'm in my 40s, but yes, in my lifetime, vast number of wetlands have disappeared. So yeah, looking at just how many wetlands have disappeared right across Europe in the time that, in in my lifetime. So for example, you know, just since the 70s, there haven't been enough, wetlands for the birds to feed on they've had to be going out and actually using the wetland areas to roost on still they still need to sleep where they are away from predators so floating in the middle of the wall but there aren't enough they have to go out and feed on waste crops and things at the end of at the end of harvesting so they're looking for waste crops everywhere so looking at how fast cropping plans, what people grow where is changing with climate change, that that change across Europe also means that the birds, rather than every year having an idea that when they get to this wetland, they'll be able to go to these places to find waste crops to feed on. They're now having to do a lot more. They arrive in a new place after maybe doing, you know, a thousand kilometer journey. And actually they've got to send scouts out to try and find where can we feed around here? So there's just more and more effort required just to do the migration. And then in terms of the people, yeah, for the people of the Arctic, hearing them, I once asked a group, what would you say to to people who are uh, cynical of climate change? I said to people back home, to them, and they roll around, rolled around laughing, saying, God, you're supposed to be the highly educated people. How can you not see that climate change is real? Because for them, it's the Arctic tundra kind of collapsing. It's the permafrost not being so high, so actually the surface level doesn't actually freeze as much as it would And for them that's their freezers they've got holes dug at various places throughout the arctic where they normally put their their food the reindeer meat or whatever to keep it cool uh for them it's the tundra not freezing as much so actually the food doesn't stay cold and their food well it's the edges of the tundra islands and things collapsing because it's no longer frozen it is there's big oil pipelines run across many parts of the russian arctic from their oil excavation activities and those oil pipelines rest; they sit off the ground on pillars, and it's a big concern for them is that when parts of the tundra collapse because of the, it's no longer frozen anymore, the, the supports of those pipelines collapse and they break, and you get oil spills across the tundra landscape, which is where they their reindeer need to feed. That happens frequently, and so seeing all those sorts of things, where I understood climate change as a concept, something that was real, seeing. Very tangible, tangible examples of climate change affecting the animals, but also people, was a was a very powerful thing for me. It's another one of those unintended consequences that come from us trying to deal with climate change. Is the the impact of power lines? So, all across Europe, as we've realised that we need to be moving to renewable energies, more and more wind turbines are being put up all throughout Eastern Europe. Now, for that power to get from those wind turbines across to the Baltic and elsewhere power lines are being put in place and they're above, above ground power lines right across towards the Baltic Sea. And that's basically lines that go right across the bird's migration route. It's not just mm. the Buick Swans, it's many other birds. And they're at a certain height and you would think, well, what are the chances that birds actually fly at that particular height? When you're on the autumn migration, as I saw myself trying to follow them in a paramotor, quite often you get low cloud cover and that low cloud cover forces you to fly at quite a low height Um, and as a human I can look out for the poles basically between the lines now a bird is not going to know to do that and you might also think surely they can see some of the power lines and I think there's one thing it's one thing for us to try and look at power lines from below and then you see a dark line against the sky but if you're at the height of the power lines or just above them against a dark ground uh, whether it's brown fields or green fields or whatever, they are absolutely impossible to see. So that was a bit of a realization for me to see just how just how big an impact all those power lines could be on the birds, and why so many of them hit power lines because they're kind of forced into that forced into flying at that, approximately that height on a regular basis. So I guess there are there are a lot of issues that were highlighted, but a key thing for me was that the areas where I could see solutions being put into place and solutions that we wanted to promote it was normally an individual possibly someone on their own possibly someone in an ngo who'd stood up and just said look i'm going to tackle this even if it seems big even if i think power companies won't listen to me hunters won't listen to me i'm going to i'm going to give it a go it's somebody that just was brave enough to step up and do something about it even if they weren't a biologist even if they had no background in the issue they had passion they had an idea for a solution and they were bold enough to go and have a go.
0: Wow. And so we, if we sit down and watch the film, we'll be able to hear those stories of some of those people too? You
1: weren't in the first film, which I didn't have anything to do with making. The second film, oh, that okay. the re-edited version, basically had all those human stories put back into it. So yeah, we interviewed a load of them. I mean, yeah, there are some amazing people. One guy has basically started shouting about a stretch of power lines in Estonia that were killing lots of swans every year, but also lots of other birds that basically... Power lines have been built across a bridge between an island and the mainland at a bottleneck in migration. So lots of birds have fallen through that area. And it was a power line that was built with six layers of lines. So any bird that saw one lot of lines would <clears throat> miss it. And if they were trying to another one. readjust, would hit another one. Yeah, it was absolutely the worst planning ever. When he first went to a the power company, he said, sorry, it's too expensive. It'll be 10 million to bury those. We went to speak to him, helped to yeah, make a noise about it, filmed a story with him, got that onto national television. And he's carried on filming, taking, getting evidence, et cetera. And, yeah, he's come back with every year since then, he's come back with more good news. So first of all, it was, okay, they're removing three of those levels. So there's only going to be now three lines. And then they put diverters, so they put basically spinning things on the whole line stretch so that at least they're more easy to see. But still kept getting caught, but a lot less. And then I got notification a couple of months ago from him. He recorded a video from the top of a cherry picker at the line saying, guess what? The, the power lines, all of them are now going to be buried by before wow. the end of 2020. So, yeah, that's thousands. This was one man with the help of the community. When he started stepping up, lots of other people started you know, agreeing with him and signing petitions and things. And yeah, that's that's an individual really winning against economic forces, you know, power companies and power is an essential thing for people. There's plenty of arguments you could make on economic and other grounds to do nothing about it, except that, you know, if you think that kind of environmental cost, that's, we're talking thousands and thousands of birds every year. Yeah, the fact that, yeah, he's managed to to, to bring that change despite all the potential arguments counter, I think is really, really testament to the power of, an, of, a, of a person with passion stepping up and, and having a go.
0: Yeah, oh, such a fantastic example, just how someone, a normal person, all of us, just, he could be any of us listening right now. Yeah, could. Yeah, that I've we, got a, and that's a, us, you know? That is, I have
1: a, another example of a lady. She didn't have the impact in the same way, but she was in Lithuania. Again, it was a story of a six- a strip of power lines that ran over a bridge through the centre of the city. She and others had seen, basically every time people would come through, anyone was basically walking along the river, kayaking along the river, the birds would be lifted off the lake. And because of the way their power lines were positioned on a bend in the river, birds would hit the lines all the time. So uh, yeah, we found uh, one occasion, this one bird had actually hit the power lines and had broken its wing. And hadn't actually died, but it basically wouldn't have survived the the winter there on its own. So it was a, a Buick swan. She had just decided to go and feed it. So all through the year, even through the winter months when it wouldn't normally survive there, she went out and fed it all year. And she'd been doing it now for three years by the time we got there to try to tell her story. <sighs> and every year the Buick swans come back on migration and she spends like two weeks with them there while they're there feeding and then they leave again and she... She's then on her own for the next couple of years, but she did that repeatedly. We went and covered a story with her and then another kayaker who had no idea of the impact that they were having on every time they scare the birds up, he went down and, and filmed it. So they had evidence of this happening. And then within a matter of weeks, the power company had responded to that and put diverters on those power lines and had plans to move them to a different position. But again, I think it's, again, it's, yeah, that wasn't, it was help of NGOs once they realised. They gave some sort of scientific backing to it, but it was individuals stepping up and saying, this is, a, this is an issue. If I can give a, another example up in the Arctic, like we, as I said earlier, we had one of the issues we knew was a big problem was illegal shooting of birds. One in three birds, when we catch them and x-ray them, has got shot in it. So they've been shot and survived. How many more have died? We don't know uh we had no idea how to reach hunters how do you get through to hunters and hunters in in different communities we didn't know exactly where it was happening so up in the arctic i asked if i basically asked lots of people from the hunting tourism world to come and have a meeting with me about my expedition particularly about logistics so how do we cross how can i cross the arctic if i need to refuel in a few key positions and whilst there was lots of laughing and jokes at one point i ended up with Quite a few different people, so a bush pilot and others, all offering to help. And by the end of the expedition, we'd made enough friends and people that I had. So one guy from who runs a, a hunting camp, he came to me with the the brochure. So I, I guess what what had happened is they got involved in the logistics, this mad idea of a woman trying to cross the Arctic, <laughs> um, and had become friends through that. And yeah, he came to me with his brochure and showed me pictures of it. And the cover picture for uh, his hunting tours was two Buick swans over a barbecue. And he said to me, look, I am so sorry. I had no idea the swans were in decline. Like, I think we'd heard that there was an issue, but we assumed it was just because, you know, swans were in fairy tales, not because the numbers are really going down. And I'm really sorry. I want to help do something about it. So we ended up with a group of of hunters, other hunters as well, all calling themselves the, the Swan Champion Network. And um, they're, they're the ones who are going out with posters, talking to people, putting up posters in all the hunting lodges saying, you know, these are the protected species. But I think because we just hadn't engaged them before, you know, with scientific papers had been written, we just hadn't engaged them in a way that they could see, I guess, realise for themselves that they not only were they potentially part of the problem, but they could instantly make themselves one of the good guys. But again, for me, it was not anybody saying, please do this. It was them, somebody else kind of seeing that there was something they could help solve and putting their hand up and saying, okay, even if this makes me unpopular amongst other hunters, I think I can do something about it. So I'm going to have a go. So yeah, again, and not a scientist, maybe scientists help kind of sound the alarm, but you need people of other skills, other network to step up and say, I can solve this. And we need to make sure they have an opportunity. So I think a big part of what we do is, let people see how they could help and what maybe they could change and offer to help and be one of the good guys rather than go straight in with saying you're a problem.
0: Oh my Uh, gosh, right, right. Because, well, one, this us versus them mentality, and I've talked about it a lot on this podcast, like if there's anything that needs to stop immediately, it's that. Yeah, it's so easy to push people away that might have different values than you might have a different way of life, but that doesn't mean they're wrong. And we can all come together on this one issue and see how with all of us and all of our different expertise can possibly come up with different solutions. And all of these solutions together might actually make the difference. And you just gave what, like three, four examples of people that are completely different. They couldn't be more different, but all of you came together just for this one expedition for this one bird and look at the cascading Mm. effects that happen from that like that's yeah an amazing story
1: (laughs) yeah and it 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 keeps on happening as the years go on as well which is which is great and then i guess it brings me to the expedition i'm in the middle of at the moment is following the osprey which in in europe has actually been driven to extinction in most countries from the Mm. uk and all of southern europe over the years which around in other continents the osprey is still quite a common bird so you'd almost not be able to imagine it but anywhere where we had big catholic communities who'd build fish ponds it would basically attract all the all the available ospreys to those fish ponds and they were then killed for the their impact on the fish for them taking fish and so that's been pretty devastating so we're now on this expedition and we're again looking at all the different threats there are to the ospreys on migration and there could be lots of finger pointing i'm all about completely acknowledging that i am just i am part of the system and i think that's the key thing. We're trying to look at a system and highlighting like the different roles people play and how they could be part of the solution. And as you said, the kind of us and them thing, I'm finding actually also really difficult now because for example, we know in West Africa where the birds end up, removal of rainforest for the plantation of, of cocoa has been a big problem. However, you know, my family are relatively well off. My mother is Swiss. My Swiss grandfather in the 1930s was a cocoa trader in Ghana specifically, which is the end of our expedition. So I'm 100% part of that system. Not only do I eat chocolate, but I've been part of that system. My English grandfather made his money selling mining and plantation equipment to Africa. Again, very much part of the whole system. So... I am yeah constantly being trying to be very very open about that even if we go and talk about the problems of cocoa I'm not saying that's your problem I'm saying this is a problem that we need to find a solution for and I'm hoping that if we can get people on board with actually like drastic decline in species not okay anymore and drastically changing climate has got to be kind of reined in if we can agree on that on that front then let's kind of find a solution but yeah, I. I would personally find it impossible to, to say it's your problem because I'm very much part of that. And I guess a lot of us, if we look back into our past, we'll see that we have been intricately involved in the way the world currently works and what's going to be changed.
0: Right. Yes. So going back to maybe the origins of the flight of the osprey, why did this species I mean, you gave like a little bit of hints of some things that might be going on with the osprey, but why Mm -hmm. this series, like why this species specifically? And is that the main issue that you are hoping to address in the end? Or what are maybe some of the other stories that you hope to bring in by telling the osprey story throughout the UK?
1: After the the Flight of the Swans expedition, i would seen lots of different threats to the birds, but actually had also seen quite often how climate change was exacerbating a lot of those issues. And so at that point, I thought, okay, climate change has got to be something that I I try and find a way that I can contribute to it, to to solving it, let's say that. What contribution can I I make? And then not long after that, we had the really unfortunate experience of um, losing our family home in Australia in the bushfires, that place I mentioned where we had a lovely indoor-outdoor kind of lifestyle. Um, yeah, that was lost to the bush, bushfires, but to a fire that, which was on a scale like we'd never seen before. Let's say twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred times worse than anything before. Much faster. Rather than being a fire with a fire front, it was a massive wall of fire that was throwing like lightning bolts and had gas balls exploding two kilometers in front of the fire front. So anyone trying to fight it just had had no chance. And it was connected to the, the thundercloud, so an eleven about an eleven kilometer high front but with all sorts going on in front of it. So we'd all been told to just not be anywhere near there. It was mind blowing. And uh, it basically put climate change into a place for me that felt very, very personal. You know, people very close to me didn't die, but could have. And so yeah, after the flight of the swans expedition, I was made ambassador for the UN convention on migratory species. And I'd made a kind of commitment to focus on doing that because we'd found a solution to quite a challenging, challenging problem of how to how to help migratory species. And so I had to have a good, long think about whether I was still having to focus on migratory species whilst there were these big global issues going on. And as I looked at it, I actually thought, what I saw was that if we can carry on doing journeys through the eyes of migratory birds, what it ends up doing, because they travel between sort of North and South, they cross political boundaries, they cross environmental boundaries, they also connect people that are wealthier countries with less wealthy countries, what you're doing in taking a slice of the world, so most all of the, the flyways around the world, about nine of them, are basically taking a slice of the, of the world, but which is at a scale that you, can, that you can deal with, that people can get their head around. They're trying to solve global problems kind of makes most people's head explode. In fact, everybody's heads explode, let's be honest. But if you yes. can look at, say, the journey of migratory birds going between north and south, this sort of transect of the world, is that a scale at which we can see really tangible links between threats and outcomes? Can we really see the tangible impacts that groups and communities are, are having? Can we focus on specific companies that we know could change the way they do things in these places? And that's what I yeah realized, that that really, that really does work. If we, if we carry on doing over the next 10 years, and that's through an organization I started called Conservation Without Borders, if we carry on doing a, a similar model, we basically can show around the world, yeah, slices of the world, problems that we're facing. But if we do it through the eyes of a bird, you can tell it in a way that's an incredible adventure as opposed to being a lecture. So one that people want to, to come and listen to rather than the one they kind of look away from. <laughs> you asked why the osprey in particular. And for me, the, the osprey is really interesting because in, certainly in, in Europe, it's a bird that is trying to make a comeback there's been a lot of reintroduction of the bird going on in different places and yeah we're making a big effort however we still have 70 to 80% of all the young birds that leave their nest never survive the the migration to return and breed and that's a really big number and uh but they also sit in a, an interesting position in a food chain they're top of a food chain and they, they eat only fish or predominantly fish but they rely on healthy forests but also freshwater and saltwater wetlands and so yeah they're in a good position So that if we can find out what might be going wrong for the osprey, we could also be helping lots of other species that are using those same wetlands and the forest.
0: Yeah. And... I'm in the Colorado Rockies in the United States and I live on a really really big lake I just moved here it's absolutely just a complete playground here and there's osprey everywhere so I had no clue I mean even me being in this field like I had absolutely no clue that these birds were having such a hard time in another place so I was so excited to talk to you about this because like one it's obviously a really big issue I am a massive fan of predatory birds because I just think They're freaking awesome. Like, just, they're just so cool to just learn about. And then also that my neighbor, my bird neighbor, just their counterparts in the other part of the world is having such a hard time. But moving beyond just the bird itself, as me, a biologist, I always love to talk about the wildlife itself. Who are the players? that are a part of this story. Are you able to tell us that yet? Or do we have to wait until, until it's out? But maybe, maybe who are some of the voices that you're, you can talk to us about as of now? So we haven't yet crossed
1: into Africa. So we're only, we've only done the European leg of this expedition so far. So I'm hoping people will be able to log in and follow the rest of the story. I have been speaking to different people in different countries for many, many months. In fact, the expedition has been being planned for three years now. But just since we've just since we've left the UK, there have been all, all sorts of threats, I suppose. Let, let's go into those that have been brought to our attention. I mean, in Europe, there has been over the years lots of persecution because of their eating fish, but not anymore, which is a uh, relief. But so ospreys have lost nests in the UK due to, to vandalism. So just last oh. year, somebody decided to uh, get out a chainsaw and the chainsaw down. One of the nests, it's not only one of the nests, and there aren't many birds in the, in the UK, but it took down a nest that it was live on camera. So one that like <gasps> thousands, that thousands of people were watching. I don't know if you've heard of that before. No, um, I didn't. I didn't know that this happened. We didn't either. And hopefully that was just a, a one-off and a bit of an unusual case. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that this year, Europe has also suffered dreadfully from drought and from wildfires. So that in a couple of areas, there's was a, a major river, for example, between Poland and Germany, where the yeah drought has been so bad that for the first, well, I think in hundreds of years, it's been lower, lower than it's been in hundreds of years. And that has not only meant that there's not very much water in the rivers, but it's concentrated a lot of the pesticides and pollutants, and that caused massive fish death. So if you're thinking of a, a bird that's migrating and eating only only fish, that has been a, potentially a big, big impact on it. Then as you get through Europe, there have been unprecedented wildfires across <laughs> France and Spain. Again, the bottleneck that all the birds are going through. And you've realized then that it's not the just fires around the, the breeding sites, the nest areas for the ospreys, it's a problem. When those fires are going and the winds are are blowing, that actually creates a barrier to migration. So an osprey will fly through some fog. It will fly through some headwind and, and even rain, but uh, it can't fly into, into smoke. And what does a bird do when it, when it comes across a, a wall of smoke? I guess that's one thing we will, we will find out over time because mm. unfortunately these wildfires are going to be going on again and again. What are the threats? We've come across the, a practice which I've not heard of, which is spraying or control of mosquitoes by uh, spraying a, a bacteria. And they control the mosquito larvae, but also uh, Chironomid larvae, which is that live lower down in, in ponds and wetlands, but really unusually. So in uh, all along the coast of France, we were once at one point, we were at a big wetland, which is on the biggest estuary in Western Europe. And it's a migration bottleneck for lots and lots of birds. And uh, it's also an area where tourists are encouraged to go to. And as we were standing there at this incredible wetland, uh, the helicopter appeared flying very low over the wetland, so at about 20 metres, running transects back and forth. And I was like, what oh, on earth can this be? Like a helicopter, they it, it must be looking for a lost person or something. And one of my colleagues said, I think they're spraying something. And yes, we found out they are spraying then. They're spraying to control the mosquitoes because the tourists won't like them. The tourists are coming and they're being attracted to come and look at the nature. And the mosquitoes that they're killing and the coronavirus are the base of the entire food chain for the wildlife in that area. So the short-sightedness of doing that and doing it during the peak migration season for all the birds that are going between Europe and Africa, um, for many of the smaller birds, that's what they're eating. But for the larger birds like the osprey, this is what fish are eating. So the idea of, of spraying to control them for a tourist just seems ridiculous. And again, I thought that it was one-sided first, and then I've realized actually that's quite widespread. So that, that is a, a bit of a challenge for us as well. However, there have also been some incredible stories of people. So in several different parts of the uh, journey, there have been areas where ospreys have been electrocuted or collided with power lines, but particularly electrocution is a challenge for the birds. They'll go catch a fish, perch on top of a, of a pylon, and when they're, they're perched, they can basically, if, if it's an older form of power line, they can be electrocuted. And there's several examples, one particular in Wales, with an individual called Gail, whose favourite Osprey was electrocuted on a power line. And she's a speech therapist or something like that, has nothing to do with the industry at all. And she decided to take it upon herself to call the power company and say, you've got to change this. And got a meeting with them pretty much straight away. Within the month, had basically got them looking to and promising to update all the other power lines in all those other areas. So again, that's hundreds of birds that could be saved by a, one person's actions and uh, yeah that was that was really impressive we've also got stories of ships captains and now many more we've basically got satellite tags on four different birds one adult and three juvenile birds to try and look specifically at their movements and then look at the weather conditions and what's going on right now and see if we can explain it or what more they could tell us and whilst one of the birds has unfortunately already been lost to sea it's been blown out off island one of the birds called glen disappeared off off the tip of cornwall and it should have basically been heading directly south but was blown well we basically thought that it disappeared so it disappeared and for two days we heard no more about it and assumed that unfortunately that one might well have also hit headwinds or crosswinds and been blown out into the atlantic and then after two days suddenly we got a ping of a location and it was on a little rock on this northern tip of France. And then after that location pings, you then get all the the back data. And what it showed was it had done this transit, it had been being blown out to sea a bit. And then it stopped and it had done a really straight line towards the southwest. And then it had done a 90 degree turn. And then it had done a straight line back towards the northeast. And we're talking 90 miles one direction and then sort of 80 miles back the other direction. And then it had realized that it had been going back north again, obviously, and done kind of a normal curvy line and back in and had found the north coast of Spain. And yeah, in that, it seemed very clear that it must have been on board a ship um, that was programmed to to fly a very straight line. I instantly thought it must have been a, a trawler. So I went to a company called Vessel Finder to see what boat it could have been, and they'd actually mapped it against two ships. They would actually jump on board a, a cargo ship uh, and then and then had seen an, another ship. So it's jumped onto that, which is taken at the which It was an LPG carrier. And yeah, and if anything, the main reason why it would have landed first of all on the cargo ship was it was exhausted so Mm. yeah the the captain of that ship had said you know they didn't see it land but they're very glad that it did and birds landing are a are a good omen for them Uh, but since since that story so that story's had almost 100 articles in uh, different papers we've had other people getting in touch so a an oil platform in the middle of the north sea has said whenever an osprey is seen landing on their decks they actually get out fresh water and fish where they can and leave it for them uh, just in case. So it's, it's interesting to see the number of kind of individual people also like a following the migration and, and caring coming from all sorts of different places.
0: So. I know that we are currently in the middle of your big expedition, so this question might not be fair or if however you want to answer it, but when all is said and done, what influence do you hope that this film will have for Osprey and maybe these bigger issues that you're tackling? So I guess I yeah see the, the project as being
1: in, in year one, we're using it as an information gathering time. So we are speaking to all sorts of people. We're speaking to scientists, but we're also speaking to individuals that live around all the key sites that the Ospreys are using en route. We're also using the media, talking through the, getting people aware of the project through the media and hoping that they come back to us with stories. So yeah, the first year of the project is all about finding out from different people what's going on, what are the main threats and... Who is it out there that's got a solution that's worked? And then what we'd like to do with the film, so we make that, that film needs to be finished after the project. The, with the film, we hope to, I guess, tell a story of all the big issues that are facing us in the world, but through the eyes of one particular bird. And that hopefully is in a way that people can get there, people can get their head around it, but also highlight the incredible people that we've met along the way that have got great ideas, they've got solutions they're putting into place and really promote them. We also will make the film available to anybody that's working in the conservation of migratory birds along the flyway. And I, what is amazing, I suppose, about a film is that, yeah, a film showing is something that can attract a conversation. It can uh, highlight the role of organizations in a particular country, but give them a standing kind of on a global scale to show that their little bit is actually really important in this whole flyway. Um, It also helps motivation, I think, for those people, because it's quite often those people that are banging a drum for a species that have an idea they're trying to put in place. It is very easy to lose enthusiasm if you can't see how your little bit is actually part of the really big picture. But by connecting them with lots of other people, I think to really show them how how they fit into the big picture that really does matter, but also help to raise their profile and raise funding and other things for, for the work that they're doing. So yeah, that's what we we really hope to do. And then there will be some big issues. So we want to start conversations with industry at the end of this project. What I've noticed as an ambassador for the Convention on Migratory Species is that around the world, we have meetings about different flyways. And sometimes, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of scientists and government officials will go to these meetings and they'll talk about the issues for the birds and what are the kind of key projects that we should put into place. And industry are always... Always talked about and they're never involved in those conversations and I really want to change that so I want to make a film and a, and a story that can start those conversations and be saying to the the heads of industry so in the case of the Osprey journey Uh, industry that are extracting the resources from West Africa and those that are selling those resources in terms of products like chocolate and olives and fish and things predominantly across Europe. I I want to tell a story that will bring lots of them to the table and show them actually that the impact that they're having, but also the power they have to actually solve a lot of these problems if they decide to put their minds to it but in many cases they might have to come together and do that so they might not be able to act as competitors but if they collaborate for the planet they can actually have a, a massive difference and issues that we could be talking about in conservation circles for decades to come they could solve them in a matter of months.
0: Wow, wow. Yeah. And if there's any way that the podcast podcasting community can be a part of that, just please just like keep that in the back of your mind as well, especially if there's like any sort of watch party that we might be able to plug into. That would be fantastic because these are the stories Absolutely. that we want to tell. These are the stories that we want to tell because it's all about hope and inspiration and solutions. It's It's all wrapped in Absolutely. one because we all we all care about this wildlife but then and but it takes moments like this films like this coming together like this in order to make some really big difference. So yeah. yeah. Keep me posted. <laughs> <laughs> will do. Thank you very much. Perfect. So, I do want to make a a little bit of a transition here back to you. So, all of this has been Incredible and so inspiring. I know I keep saying those, but that is truly how I feel when it t- when you talk about your work and everything that you've done so far. But as I'm well aware from my own personal journey and talking to so many people, that there's a lot of not sexy stuff that comes with the sexy stuff. You know, we've we've done a whole bunch of really fantastic highlights of all these amazing mm-hmm. accomplishments that you've done, but if you wouldn't mind could you tell me a little bit more about maybe the unsexy stuff maybe the grueling work the days that were really hard for you to get out of bed what's some of the crappy stuff that you've had to overcome of to any point that you would be comfortable with sharing with me (laughs) oh wow I mean I guess if you
1: look at the look at the realities of uh yeah putting a project together so the flight of the osprey project particularly as i'd gone for working within uh other, other ngos all the systems to uh wanting to put together projects of my own so before just to get the conservation without borders off the ground i had i think 20 months of having no salary uh you know i'd set a precedent and had shown that it worked but despite that still getting people to commit to a, a new ngo and a project that involved, you know, countries in West Africa, which is a, a market that I suppose lots of companies weren't interested in. So there's not as easy a sponsorship like I was request as one that was based in Europe. Yeah, 20 months of having no salary, but just believing 100% in what I was doing. So that is all pretty unsexy. I mean, I it's I, every time you speak to a new potential sponsor, you go into it with. You know enthusiasm, but yeah, behind the scenes, it's predominantly sitting at a computer, writing proposals, redrafting proposals. I'd say that was pretty unsexy, but I believed in it wholeheartedly. And there were a few, there were a few moments along those months that I, uh, I really wondered whether I was doing the right thing. But I have a good network of people who I'd see as devil's advocates. They're supporters, but they're challenging supporters, and some of them have come into my world as being just complete um i guess yeah people who've got in touch to to criticize for some reason and i've where i've can where someone's criticized but with something that actually had a bit of context to it and had a bit of meaning i've tried where possible to to keep them involved so yeah i've got a good network of people that are, are challenging, not just people that tell me I'm great and my ideas are great all the time. So that also helps and helps to keep my my head in it. What other things have been just rubbish? I mean, one of my expeditions, I had a pretty serious accident. I uh, had an expedition flying around the coast of Britain. So as part of during during COVID, the UK was hosting the UN COP26 the climate conference and we'd put together a project for that which was trying to ditch my petrol powered paramotor and fly with an electric paramotor trying to get all around the coast and nobody had done that before in a paramotor at all let alone an electric paramotor and again that was trying to speak to people with flu solutions to climate change all around the country and that was yeah it was a, a pretty amazing project but i did have a pretty serious accident as part of it and i guess that is part of um That is part of the expedition model that I've chosen. So in preparing for this project, and actually whilst a lot of what you see is me meeting people, uh, going different places for a lot of it, I'm doing it with a metal frame on my leg, for example. So that's been a a bit of a challenge, but again, what makes it all possible is good people. So within the team, there's a few people who are really facilitating that whilst I'm not super able-bodied at the moment having good people around you who can help facilitate and believing what you're trying to do makes a, a huge difference and yeah, really believing also not in just the, just the expedition we're trying to pull off, but also I know that we can have significant impact at the other end of it. That just makes the rest of it. <laughs> what other horrible bits are you wanting me to talk about is there anything in particular
0: <laughs> <laughs> no that was really good I never know what someone's going to say when I ask that question so I always love to have the opportunity because we all go through our trials and our struggles and it's very rare that we have an opportunity to talk about that and I think it really helps helps humanize what these amazing leaders that we see go through, like, you know, we can go to the, to the Conservation Without Borders website, you know, sitting down chatting with you. And we just see this highlight reel, which is exactly what we want to see. But there's there's the other side of it, too. And to never forget that there is another side. So if someone listening is maybe going through something really hard, or they're really questioning what they're doing right now, we just spent an hour talking about all of these amazing accomplishments, but even someone like you has had some really hard days like i can't imagine what that accident was like for you and then coming up with like plan b c d e f who knows what to continue on with this project of you know the flight of the osprey when you had a very serious injury like that's that's one insanely inspirational but two like that is some real shit you know like that is real that is you don't get more real than that and then bodily harm so, and there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of people, not my surgeons, thankfully, but there's a lot of people who were
1: there were there were naysayers that were like, why are you doing this? You know, why? Yeah, it is more than actually just the the physical injury. You'll always find people that think you, uh, you shouldn't be doing it or it's irresponsible because you're not able bodied. I mean. I'm now going to become a, a a champion for those of challenged abilities of any kind because it can be incredibly frustrating when actually my head is completely, you know, the same. There's absolutely no reason why I shouldn't be doing the things I want to do if we can if we can make it happen. But yeah, you you find uh, you find critics everywhere, and that's what I think it's important to keep the. To keep a group of people who's who can be critical but who you trust around you all the time. But yeah, there have been many things. I would say also the the project I mentioned before, where you know as a as a biologist, I started looking through all the data around the shark nets. Uh, on that project, I just thought this was a this was an, an easy thing. All I was asking for was that we had to do like a proper environmental impact assessment of mm-hmm. what the shark nets were actually doing. Were they saving any human lives? What was the impact on all uh, biologically? Uh, That was a project that I I thought was going to be an easy one for people to be interested in and want to cover and say, yes, it's a great idea. And I didn't find that at all. And so, yeah, my plan sort of B and C were actually looking at that again, going, "Why why aren't people listening to this? I don't understand. Okay. And then once I had pictures, it was like, all right, I get it. Like people's, you know, you get through to people in a different way. There's been plenty of moments of extreme frustration, but yeah, I like to take lots of moments of sort of stepping back and looking at something and trying to take the emotion out of it for a moment and think, what is really going on here? Why, what is the, again, maybe it's a bit of looking at the system, thinking what, find a way, or even people that can help you do that, step back and look at the big picture and think. Is it me? Am I the problem? Which is quite often what you instantly start to think. <laughs> um, or is it something else? Am I just missing a piece? Am I missing another collaborator that I need to bring in? Am I telling the story in the right way? And uh, have I have I just, you know, ended up with the wrong people? Uh, and again, I think constantly checking, do I really believe in what I'm doing? And if you do, yeah, look at the system around you and figure out what bits of it wow.
0: might. Yeah, yeah. And so continuing down this this line of thought a little further, I always love to ask everyone that comes on what particular piece of advice that that you would like to share or like a a message of something because you know, not everybody listening are biologists or professors or anything. We all come from different backgrounds, but we're all here for our love of conservation. So if there is just one thing that maybe that we could take away from this conversation with, what would you like that to be?
1: firstly it doesn't matter at all if you have no biology or ecological training if you see a i guess an issue or a problem that you want to help with if you're kind of smart and interested you can you can probably read what you need to read and speak to people uh i guess I guess what I have found is if you really want to, if you really feel you want to make an impact for the environment or for an issue, I have found over the years that where I have the most impact is where my skills and something I'm passionate about that kind of, you know, wakes me up at night and something that I rationally feel is important, where you can somehow overlap those two, but in particular, looking at where you're unique. Group of skills give you power to have an impact. I think if you can somehow cross all of those, then you're onto a winner. So, for example, there I guess there have been things, issues before that have really moved me, but I look at the big picture and actually I, they don't feel like they they are big enough for me. And so there's that piece of that puzzle is missing. But as a, I guess as an example, when I was flying across the Russian Arctic at one point, I was sitting basically there above, you know, amazing landscape that I'd never seen before and that I knew I'd probably never see again. I was heading to a community that I knew nothing about. I knew that there were people there who'd, who'd observed swans being shot, but knew nothing about what sort of reception I'd get, how big the community was, anything like that. It's completely unknown. I was speaking my very rude rudimentary russian with a with google translate downloaded onto my phone and i was really excited about it and i was thinking at the time you know wow this is amazing this is exactly where i need to be and yet for most people that exact scenario would have been absolute hell even the biologists nice. and ecologists that i knew the scientists working in swans the idea of randomly turning up in a community trying to talk to a load of people that, had, that we knew were hunting swans about hunting so that you might've got an aggressive response. You're in a wild landscape where an engine failure would have meant like having to look after yourself in the country where there's bears and polar bears and things. For me, I was in my absolute element and I was pretty sure that I would be able to use all sorts of different skills, I suppose, to, to get people to be on my side. Um, and yet, yeah, for, for most other people, that would have been absolute hell. And it wasn't the group of skills that I, you know, was, how much of my biology training, how much of my genetics training was I really using in that situation? <laughs> Not very much. I was using my, the fact that I'd grown up in hunting communities, the fact that I was quite comfortable in nature and the fact that I kind of, I really like and I'm interested in people. and I'm passionate about what I'm doing. I was using that different mix of skills. I also don't want that to anybody to be thinking about looking at that and thinking that's what a conservationist looks like, because it looks like all sorts of different things. And I I have spoken before at events when, you know, young people have come up and said, and that's amazing, but I couldn't do anything like that. And. Yeah I ab- absolutely that is not all that is needed for for my projects I have relied sometimes on you know the services of of lawyers who really knew kind of industrial law and that's exactly what we needed to know what b- buttons to press to change things that actually um the design of a poster or card or invitation was actually going to be critical to to moving somebody so pretty much whatever your skill is, if you've, if you've got a skill or think about what your range of skills are and how that can be useful, if you don't know how that can be useful, find organizations whose work you love and basically offer to help. And you might have to go to 10, 20 different organizations before somebody who understands what you do, or you can see how that might help, you know, says yes. Uh, but yeah, that's a good place to start. And then otherwise, if there are, yeah, if you've got time to, to look into an issue, in more depth, you're bound to find some way that your unique range of skills could help. Could not have said that better myself.
0: That was so good. Oh, Sasha, I could talk to you all day, but I know that you have so many amazing things to get to. It is your evening time right now. It is my morning. I've been drinking my cup of coffee, ramping up for the day. There's nothing better than starting a day like this, sitting down with an absolutely inspirational person. But So how can someone maybe engage with the project, maybe follow it as it's going along and maybe even try to connect with you or Conservation Without Borders to learn more or just ask further questions? What's the best way? How can someone get in touch? I look for Conservation
1: Without Borders on any of the social networks and yeah, follow us there. We're sharing the expedition in different ways there um the website conservation without org, which is very long and cumbersome but um yeah uh, we're interested in hearing from all sorts of people whether it's osprey stories yeah whether you're interested in getting involved but yeah come and and follow the journey and we will any any opportunities we have for people to get involved we tend to promote that through the website there as well um uh, but yeah contributions questions are all really important also uh because we're interviewing lots of people along the way that are uh, that are doing something so yeah interest from around the world just sort of yeah interest in engaging in those alone is is really helpful
0: perfect i've everything listed in the show notes at Rewildology.com. and if anybody has any questions feel free to reach out to me or conservation without borders We will be more than happy to chat and chat further. And of course, I want to share as you go along your journey. So I'll be sure to stay in touch and keep everybody up to date. But thank you, Sasha, so much for sitting down with me and sharing your story with the Rewartology community. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. And we'll stay in touch. Wow. I hope you're feeling just as inspired as me to get out there and stir some positive change for our planet. If you'd like to stay up to date on the flight of the Osprey Expedition, please check out conservation-without-borders.org or go to the show notes of today's episode to easily find the link. If you have a specific question you'd like to discuss about today's topic, head on over to the Rewildology YouTube channel and submit your question in the comment section of today's episode. Some of you have reached out and asked how you can support the show. Well, I am happy to share that there are several ways to do so. Some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewidology newsletter at the website, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at rewadology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your rewadology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer for making the show sound and look awesome and Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we'll rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel, story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.